Yeah, let us put things together in mixed intelligence strategy. We learned some tricks about the iterative process between human intelligence and artificial intelligence. And that process turned out to be a perfect fit for rapid AI prototyping. I learned from Michael Siedlmeier that rapid prototyping is a powerful method to get early feedback from users. And this is where my new method comes in. I just exchanged the term users with another party. Instead, we can receive early feedback from the computer. Hello and welcome back to the Austrian AI podcast. With me, Manuel Pasieka. Building AI solutions is hard. Using the AI hammer to be solving the actual source of a problem even harder. Today on the show, I'm talking to Paul Punchard on how to make sure you ask the right question and try to use AI to answer the best question that will solve the challenges that you're facing. Paul will describe his approach to mixed intelligence, AI prototyping and play science in order to, through a playful iterative development process, learn more about the problem you try to solve, learn how to ask the right questions and inspire creative solutions that hit the nail on the head. I hope you enjoyed this interview and can take parts and pieces of it into your next project. Paul Punchard, hello. Thank you very much for coming on to the show. Hello, Manuel. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you today on the show. I noticed you, or let's say I, I found you by a LinkedIn post of yours, which I found very interesting. And that's the reason I brought you today on the show to talk a bit about your approach to what you call rapid AI prototyping with mixed intelligence. And in the end, I hope, like, as you mentioned already, combining play science or using play science in your work, rapid AI prototyping with fun and as an exciting way to do so. But maybe before we start to talk about your approach, your methodologies and your ways that you found that make, let's say, prototyping successful, fun and fast, maybe we can talk a bit or you can talk a bit about your background what brought you to machine learning, artificial intelligence, and what you're currently working on. Yeah, sure. I'm so happy that you invited me to this interview, or let's call it play session, to play a bit around. Hello, world. My name is Paul. I am, first of all, an artist. I enjoy expressing myself with music instruments. I play guitar. I do the drums bass, keyboard, sing-sang, you know. I, A complete band, you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do blues harp and keyboard, and the list goes on. I enjoy expressing myself with mathematics <laughs> and so also with technology. And so with our topic today, I like to play with AI. We can say play I. Great, yes. Um, my first experience with AI happened in 2018. I trained my computer to distinguish my two border collies. I used an image set of 300 holiday images, and I really enjoyed this project and learned what AI can do for me. Mm -hmm. This was back then past part of your master thesis, right? Yes. 
Um, also in 2018, I developed my master thesis. It was namely mixed intelligence for lost property offices. Interesting. And if I understood correctly, right, that as you already said, this was your first contact in many ways with machine learning and its capabilities. And uh, if I understood correctly, you many ways fell in love with it. As you said, using this as part of an object detection, and maybe we are going to talk a bit about it later as well, before then moving like in into or moving back then to catalysts and currently Cloudflight, where you're working if I see if I got this right, as a machine learning engineer, is this correct? Like solving all kinds of different problems and challenges for, for the customers of CloudFlight. Yeah, this is correct. So I work for CloudFlight now for three years. And I started with many AI projects there. Now I have a lot of experience. I mostly like projects for nature. so defending the wood from bark beetle infestation, for example. And I enjoy working there in general. Interesting. As I already mentioned before, like I noticed a post of yours on LinkedIn where you were describing your experience participating in the NetHack Challenge, which is a public reinforcement learning challenge where different teams, in your case yourself, were trying or were building an agent that by itself would be able to solve the NetHack challenge, which is a, and let's say actually quite old computer game already. Can you maybe for our listeners talk a bit about like first maybe of all, what is NetHack? And then with the describing a bit like what the NetHack challenge was about and how you approach it, because I think this would be a great segue into your, what you have developed your methods towards rapid AI prototyping. And as well, it would give us an introduction to your concept of mixed intelligence. Yeah, of course. So Facebook AI sponsored by Meta AI and DeepMind published an AI challenge for the field of reinforcement learning. It was in 2021. The NetHack Challenge provided an opportunity to benchmark different solutions of the NetHack Challenge. Uh, sorry, of the NetHack Learning Environment. The NetHack Learning Environment contains complex sequential decision-making tasks, but is exceptionally cheap to simulate and Therefore, it was believed to present one of the most interesting and accessible grant challenges in reinforcement learning. NetHack is a single-player dungeon exploration game. Unlike many other Dungeons and Dragons-inspired games, the emphasis in NetHack is on discovering the detail of the dungeon and not simply attacking every monster inside. In fact, attacking every monster inside is a good way to die quickly. Each game presents different landscape because a random number generator provides an essentially unlimited number of variations of the dungeon and its denizens to be discovered by the player in one of a number of characters. So you can pick your race, your role and your gender. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I joined NetHack Challenge very late and I knew I would only have seven working days to do everything I want. On the first day, I just set up my development environment. On the second day, I already achieved 
rank six on the global leaderboard. So I thought, okay, let's go. Interesting. And just jump forward just a moment. So how, how did you make, or how successful were you in the end? Were you happy? Like which position did you rank in, in the end? And have you, were you happy with the results you got after like submitting your final solution? Yeah. In the end, I was able to develop the fourth best autonomous agent for the challenge. I was very happy and I also presented my solution at NeurIPS conference mm -hmm. where they also published everything from their challenge. Very interesting. I was quickly looking into the NetHack challenge. There's a paper that I will go in, that I'm going to include as well in the show notes about the analysis of the solutions provided in the NetHack 2021 challenge. As you already pointed out, like it's it's a tough reinforcement learning problem to solve because like the, the action space of an agent in this sense or the, the simulation is huge. It's, it's, as you already said, it's a procedure generated level for each of the instances of the, of the game. And in addition to that, there are all kinds of different uh, attributes that make the game a challenge. Like as you already said, there's not always the same type of agent, but they are like, I think there are nine different roles or something. And all of these roles have different attributes. And, and as I would imagine as well, like actions they can perform. And reading into the description of the challenge, and I saw that many of the, or like the best solutions at the moment symbolic approaches, meaning those are systems where in many ways they were human driven, in which way someone was like many ways analyzing the game, defining certain features and states and build an engine around it that the agent is basically solving based on like set of heuristics and, and humanly defined descriptions of the problem. But as we talked or Mike, of Mike already, your solution is a bit different. And your solution actually applies this concept of mixed intelligence that you have developed, which I find very interesting. So maybe we can start with you giving a short introduction to what is mixed intelligence and in, in maybe exemplifying it here with, with your solution of the NetX challenge, in which way your mixed intelligence approach, for example, differs in to traditional type of reinforcement learning, which for example, is tries to improve or like tries to, to use prior knowledge of a human in like shaping the reward function similar, which is as understood in some ways you do, or you have a different approach. Yeah. So during my development of my master thesis, I developed this new strategy, mixed intelligence, because I wanted to experiment with new methods, how to solve AI problems. I can tell you a bit what I mean with mixed intelligence, the mm -hmm. way I categorize it and how I use it theoretically and practically. Um, in the addition to the term artificial intelligence, which is broadly used nowadays, I wanted to describe the gradual flow towards human actions, ending up with the mixed intelligence continuum. The mixed intelligence strategy can then be applied on any tasks in that continuum. So the goal is to determine general applicability, but rather to find the best balance between human intelligence and artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. The mixed intelligence continuum represents 
the full spectrum of technological as well as organizational possibilities and strategies between human intelligence and artificial intelligence. Like in every other continuum, the inner parts are almost indistinguishable. Only the extremes are encapsulated. And the term mixed intelligence covers any strategy where human intelligence and artificial intelligence are combined as a system to achieve a common goal. In this framework, mixed intelligence covers most of the continuum, except for the endpoints as extremes. And the mixed intelligence continuum is broken down into four parts. So on one endpoint, there's human intelligence, which consists solely of human creations, for example, classic software without any kind of machine learning. And then we go towards artificial intelligence. So the next step is augmented humanity that are humans supported by machine learning. For example, your online shopping experience supported by machine learning suggestions. Then we have augmented artificiality, which is machine learning supported by human knowledge. For example, if you train a neural network starting to learn from samples of human trajectories. And then we have the last endpoint, which is artificial intelligence consists solely of machine learning, like a neural network chess player that would learn by playing only against himself or mutated clones of himself. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Of course, machine learning is also an invention made by humans. However, once you set up your computer, can learn to solve tasks or play games completely on its own and without further human input using unsupervised learning, for example. So I hope you get the idea. Mm -hmm. Maybe just to, for me, shortly summarize it here and maybe put it a bit, let's see, into like more traditional concepts that I'm at least familiar with. As you already pointed out, right, this is a spectrum in the sense there is a, as you said, like extremes. It's clear that on one side, as you mentioned, for example, on the human side, human written software in this sense is just the codification of like a human approach or the human understanding and the way a human would solve a problem. And on the other extreme, you have this what I think in the last 10, 15 years with the deep learning boom, definitely is like this dream of having like this purely data driven self, uh, self supervised in some way systems that are able to solve problems. And anything in between is always the mixture of, or of, of these two. As you already said, right? Starting maybe from the human side, if you go like in towards a bit like using machine or data driven solutions and helping them with humans. I think this traditionally is often called in many ways or is a theme of augmentation, which have often is used like in decision support systems, right? Where a human maybe is analyzing and solving a task and some computer system is helping a human to, to be better, to be more effective, to be faster on the task. And like this, the other, even going even further in towards the direction of autonomous um, Agents, right, as you already pointed out, is maybe one other way is to put priors, human priors into the learning process of an agent, 
which for example can be, as you already said, either by type of imitation learning, where an agent is observing human solving tasks, learning through that. Or maybe I think what is very common nowadays as well is the type of curriculum learning, especially I think in the context of reinforcement learning, right? Where a human defines an ever increasing uh, set of, of tasks, which are ever increasing in their complexity and difficulty. So an agent step by step can learn to, to get better on a task. Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely something that has been has been a challenge for a long time to to find the right and good balance and to find the ways to to be as you said augmenting or finding a combination of like human priors human understanding making use of human understanding of a problem and uh, combining it with a data-driven solution yeah so first of all start with identifying where am i in this continuum mm-hmm. and then i try to put the mixed intelligence, the mixed intelligence strategy on top of that. Mm-hmm. I understand. So, can, can we maybe, as you already said, like if you applied this uh, in several of your projects, can we maybe start out by by you explaining us based on, for example, net hack challenge where you applied this as well to give us an, maybe a concrete example of like a challenge where you applied your mixed intelligence approach to improve. The performance in this case, the performance of an agent solving the NetHack challenge. Yes. Um, at the NetHack challenge, I found out that the advantage of my computer is that a lot of episodes can be tested and trained like 2000 steps a second in this game. And I was sure that my trained reinforcement learning agent could find a very effective movement through the dungeon. Mm-hmm. And as part of human intelligence, the advantages of my NetHack playing experience, because I played the game for like 15 years now, mm-hmm. were implemented in an environment wrapper. This allowed me to interfere with the environment instead of changing the reward function. By mm-hmm. creating certain constellations, I supported the agent with healing, force bolting, with pet-friendly behavior, and so on. The more I supported my virtual agent, the more could I learn from the agent watching him play and giving him even more support, and so on. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Maybe just to clarify this here, you mentioned this the first time like even preparing for this interview and I found it very interesting. As you already pointed out, traditionally, if one tries to introduce priors into the learning process of a reinforcement learning agent, often what is done is, as you already said, you try to modify the, the reward function. So the way the reward is calculated in order to, to get to bring the agent to operate, to behave in certain ways. And this often is really a tough challenge because you get misalignments in many ways. It's very typical in reinforcement learning systems that suddenly the system tries to take shortcuts to to perform actions which give a high reward, but obviously are not aligned with the final goals, at least that we as humans would think this brings. But instead of doing this, as you already said, is you have built this, what you I think called it now environment wrapper, which is, which I think is very interesting. And if understood correctly, this, this means that you using, as you said, your priors to build heuristics that uh, on one side 
change how the agent perceives its environment. And on the other side as well, I think you mentioned this already, apply some automatic heuristics in like acting instead or like instead of the agent. Is this correct? Yes. Um, the general goal in NetHack is that the player has to find an amulet very deep in the dungeons and bring it back. But how would you define your reward function there? Mm -hmm. So you can try to get as many points in the game as possible or try to find as many gold as possible, try to defeat so many monsters, but it won't really help you in first place to find the amulet, right? Mm -hmm. um, so my approach was to simplify the environment. When I created my first agents, I watched them play and I found out, for example, if they find secret door, they would try to kick against it one, two times and then go away. Mm -hmm. But I learned that if you hit the door like five times or 50 times, then maybe it can break open and you find the secret floor that you need to find to get to the next levels. And I changed the environment a bit. So with my environment wrapper, I told the environment that if an agent is knocking on this closed door, the agent will automatically hit the door like 10 times. Mm -hmm. I understand. So in many ways, you are then amplifying the actions of the agent to some extent for that specific case. Mm -hmm. Yes, but it doesn't really work if you're only using an algorithm for that because the starting point is the agent that tries to open the door. So it's always combination of the agent and my knowledge. I understand. So you mean that in the sense, this is not in some way automatically triggered. It's not like it's a fixed rule that every time somewhere a hidden door is or a secret door is there, it's automatically knocked hundred times or something. But it's, as you already said, it's you basically move a bit like a bit of a bias towards knocking on doors, but the, the action itself has to come from the agent. So it has to be learned uh, by the agent. Yes, I try to simplify the environment so the agent can actually learn efficiently. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And can you maybe talk a bit about, because this, as you already pointed out, this is like a very iterative process, right? So you, you said that you are building prototype an agent, you observe how the system behaves towards the, the goal that you want to achieve or the challenge you want to solve, in this sense, the NetHack challenge, and then you are iter iteratively coming up with maybe possible ways to improve this performance. Can you maybe describe a bit how, how you approach this? Is, 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 there, is it very different between the different projects you worked on or is there, for you, is there a certain common ground and that you say, okay, you, there's some certain recommendations that you can give, for example, for our listeners if they, if they want to be as well quickly in developing prototypes? Yeah, let me explain the mixed intelligence strategy a bit more. So the general idea of mixed intelligence is to combine the advantages 
of human intelligence and artificial intelligence and let them work together to achieve a common goal they would not be able to achieve on their own. The mixed intelligence strategy is to put continuous process between human intelligence and artificial intelligence. And during the development of a solution, we can try to learn new things from machine learning results and mm -hmm. vice versa, the machine learning parts will learn from us. Compared to other AI development strategies, we do not start with defining a task to be solved with AI. Instead, okay. we start with data investigation and we will find the best way of interplay between humans and computers. The continuous process is key to success we will find those things that matter most for mixed intelligence system for achieving the common goal. And each iteration, we try to focus on the learnings, on all our findings to figure out what works best and what doesn't work at all. And in the end, we just take the best parts, mix them together, and voila, our system is good to go. Interesting. Can you maybe then describe a bit like when you talk about an iteration here or like approach, uh, it obviously will depend to some extent to, to the size of the challenge and the system that you're building, but can, but of what kind of time frames are we talking about here? I mean, you mentioned already very brief, briefly at the beginning that for, for example, for the NetHack challenge, you were even able to come up with a first prototype. It seems like after one day, which, which made the sixth rank in, in the challenge. This sounds very impressive, especially because I look into the NetTech challenge, if I understood it correctly, it's, it's say you are interacting with the simulation through like a visual representation, a text representation, at least of the game that you have to many way to interpret, uh, act on it and feed this type of representation to an agent. Can you maybe talk a little bit about systems, the methods and the tooling that you have developed for yourself over the over the years that really enable this rapid AI prototyping that then is the basis of those these iterations and only then actually, right? If because you are so quickly in iterating in many ways, you are able then to to apply this combination of human experience and human understanding of the problem with what the machine found. Yeah, so I developed my own kind of method, the rapid AI prototyping, which derived from uh, rapid prototyping. It is a software development method for fast and explorative, or let's say adventurous development for every system containing artificial intelligence. Yeah, let us put things together in mixed intelligence strategy. We learned some tricks about the iterative process between human intelligence and artificial intelligence. And that process turned out to be a perfect fit for rapid AI prototyping. I learned from Michael Siedlmeier that rapid prototyping is a powerful method to get early feedback from users. And this is where my new method comes in. I just exchanged the term users with another party. Instead, we can receive early feedback from the computer. Mm -hmm. So when I built 
very small prototypes that contains hopefully only one feature. I can experiment it, observe it, and already learn from it on how I would use it at the end. In rapid AI prototyping, we are willing to try new methods, ideas, or experiences without any fear of taking risks. So it's adventurous. The method is based on play. Mm -hmm. Pen and paper prototype is the fastest piece of work that we can create and share to talk about requirements, ideas, and methods to achieve a goal. And before taking some days of um, implementation to get some running code, we can also consider a problem as already solved, draw a solution on a piece of paper, and then play with it to find out how it would work if my computer would already be able to solve the task. You mean, if I understand correctly here, you mean like you are by stimulating, let's say, a solved or partially solved solution through a pen and mm -hmm. paper scenario, you can evaluate and that's my, you can evaluate how a user would interact with the system. What, what are you evaluating? Yes, it's about the interplay between humans and the computer. For example, if you ask a neural network to predict a timeline, let's mm -hmm. go with that, for example, you can already play that. What would be if the computer just give you the next point in the timeline? What could you do with that information? This already enough. For example, if you know how the timeline would change in the future, mm -hmm. what would change for you? Mm -hmm. And how would you use this information for whatever goal you have? And this process helps you to ask good questions because mm -hmm. in AI, it's a lot that you have to find a good question to ask so that the computer can solve it. And it should be a question that really helps you in doing your work if you want to get support from AI. Okay. Okay. If understood correctly, in many ways, doing a type of prototyping or like a bit of, it sounds a bit of like design prototyping, where you come up, as you said, like to, to better understand on one say, on one side, the problem on one side, the benefit and the system answering a specific question can bring towards the user in many ways, which definitely makes sense. It's if you already said prototyping, rapid prototyping is successful in software development because actually it avoids this type of problems that you traditionally had with waterfall systems where you had a specification that maybe think people at some point thought it's a good idea, then you iterate half a year on it. And then finally you come to the realization that you have been building what was specified, but what you specified was not what you actually needed or wanted, right? So in this sense, definitely this makes a lot of sense. And I'm just wondering to, to bring it a bit, for example, to, to problems that we're often facing and in particular, for example, that you have been facing in this reinforcement learning NetTech challenge. Can you maybe give us an example of one or two iterations that you performed during developing your NetTech challenge to understand how this looks like concretely for, for a closed loop uh, reinforcement learning problem? Yeah. So specifically for the NetTech challenge, 
as I built my first prototype, I found out that the movement through the dungeon was very efficient, but my agent was starving a lot. And that was my first finding. So I tried to find a way where I can um, support my agent in all the food management. Mm -hmm. Maybe here's a good point here to maybe for our listeners who don't know NetHack. I didn't know that either like to shortly explain like the dynamics of, of, of food and, and starvation. Yeah, the game itself is <laughs> uh, very hard to master because there are so many fields that you have to understand. In terms of artificial intelligence, there, first of all, there's computer vision because you have a representation of the dungeons and somehow the computer needs to perceive the surrounding. And also there is text that you have to understand. So if the game tells you you got bitten by a rat, you have to understand what's going on. So it also would benefit from natural language processing. Then there is the understanding of time, like in food management, after some steps, the player is getting hungry and needs to eat in order to not starve. And with the Netic challenge, all those fields were combined, mm -hmm. which makes it so hard. Okay, understand. So you mean like it's even difficult for the an agent to identify the situation that let's say the the agent is hungry in many ways. Do I understand this correctly? And like you and as you already pointed out, like similar to your environment wrapper, you identified in one iteration that the agent poorly is able to detect that it is hungry in many ways as a player. And you then did what in order to make it easier for the agent? Or how did, what was the result, let's say, of this iteration? I can tell you a bit better with another example. So as I watched my agent running around and attacking monsters, there is one monster that you shouldn't really attack standing next to it, which is the acid blob. Okay. So if you hit the acid blob, it will explode and you're full of acid and maybe you die because of that. So I saw my agent attacking all kinds of monsters, but it's very hard to learn those edge cases because for the computer, what the computer is seeing is that there's a monster, I attack it, I get points for that. Why isn't that for the acid blob? That's mm -hmm. hard to identify. And in this case, I supported my agent with throwing objects. So if my agent would see an acid blob somewhere, he wouldn't go directly to it and to attack it, but try to throw weapons on it mm -hmm. to defeat it. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And as you already pointed out, so those are like the types of improvements that step by step you would make for, for the system in order to, to achieve its final goals. Mm -hmm. I understand. Yeah. In those seven days, I created around 20 prototypes. Interesting. And as I already asked before, like one key element here, obviously, is the speed of iteration, the speed that you that you can achieve to iterate. And can you maybe talk a little bit about this process? So like when 
be feel free to really talk we can, we can talk about details here like do you maybe have some recommendations of people who want to do prototyping maybe on like as you said similar hobby projects or maybe even then really apply them to like their yeah, more professional development processes and you maybe talk a little bit from your experience maybe on one side what really enables you to be quick in iterating and developing those solutions and on the other side maybe some what you would recommend to avoid that you that you maybe know exactly that you had you seen how others work that really costs them a lot of time mm -hmm. so rapid ai prototyping is designed for small teams let's say a self-organized team of four members like you would do in proof of concepts or mvps and the Three key points of rapid AI prototyping are that we can create new prototypes or release versions at any point. And we can combine all those prototypes which we already found to be valuable. And it always takes similar effort to any previous prototype development iteration. Mm -hmm. So what helps me build small prototypes is to focus on one feature. I, with every prototype, I only want to understand and investigate to try out one feature so that I really know, okay, this strategy works out. And if you are implementing your prototypes very cheap, it's also not a problem to fail cheap. So mm -hmm. if you found that object detection is not a good thing in your project, then you can just throw it away without fear of losing too much of your work. Okay. It, it's very adventurous. Really don't have to be afraid of any risks. Mm -hmm. I understand. But does, does this as well imply that like, first of all, when you start a new project, that the first thing that you're actually working on is on the many ways, the infrastructure around it. So the way that you evaluate the performance of, of your iteration, the way that you can, that you have the tooling surrounding it, that you even crank out a new version. Is, is, is this right? Yeah. I focus on evaluating the environment in which our problem actually occurs. Okay. Interesting. And is there maybe something that you would, our listeners as well, would recommend them to avoid some uh, some common, let's say, pitfalls that you have seen, like that wastes a lot of time uh, with your experience, maybe something personally or that you have seen in others before? In every project that I did, I found out that there is a better question to be asked than okay. the one that was defined in the beginning. So. Instead of questioning, for example, how long would a task take, you can ask, how can I solve the task most efficiently? Mm -hmm. So sometimes you don't need to estimate something, but if you already have a neural network, you can change the question a bit and get way better results at the end to use the artificial intelligent network. Mm -hmm. Okay, I understand. And this, I guess, like this is very close to what you said already before that only through the interaction with the system and seeing how someone uses the system in many ways, you can then 
come up uh, with a formulation of the original question, original task that really then helps to, to solve the problem more effectively or better than before. Yeah, I can use another example. So for classification task, if you start with analyzing the data, you maybe find some features that would not help your initial question solved, but can help you with some mixed intelligence concepts. Mm -hmm. um, let's explain it with my master thesis. One problem was that AI would not keep up with times in identifying lost property items. Like if we would have trained a neural network to recognize mobile phones 20 years ago, how would they ever recognize mobile phones of nowadays? So I wanted to create a system that can keep up with the times. And so I decided the easiest way to do that is that we feed the samples that are evaluated and classified back to the network for continuous training. Mm -hmm. Let's say a lost property um, office clerk is doing recordings of the lost items and he has a picture of a wallet and the computer says, okay, it's a wallet. Mm -hmm. Then we can use that image for continuous training. And it's easy to classify an image, also easy for humans to do that. It's not so easy if it comes to object detection. So one of my ideas back then was that you could place more objects in one image, like glasses, your phone and the wallet and your keys. And the system would tell you this position is a wallet at this position is key, but this is a way harder task than just uh, image classification by itself. Object detection is more expensive to train, more expensive to learn. And it's easier if you only use image classification to feed it back to the network because I don't want the clerks to draw bounding boxes on the images around the objects for continuous training. If they just say, yes, the, the answer of the network is correct, you have perfect training data. Mm -hmm. Okay, I understand. So this is like a continuous type of feedback that, that you provide to the system. And, and if understood correctly, what is important here as an example is that initially, maybe when you started out with the problem, you thought it would be sufficient to, to just detect objects, like the object based on the examples that you had. But then you only realized that this solution would only work for a certain amount of time until like the objects that come in many ways change sufficiently so that the system would would be outdated to some extent. And in order to cope with this outdating of the system, then you understood, okay, it has to be a continuous feedback process there in place in order to for the system to be working long term. Maybe then like moving much towards the end of the interview, there there is something that we we shortly talked of Mike that I think was very interesting as well to maybe connect it to what we have been talking about already. And this is your interest in your approach using play science in your work. Maybe we can, you can start out by for our listeners to, to tell us what is play science? What is it all about? And, and what does it mean? And how are you making use of it? 
Yeah, this year I participated in two workshops in England. The workshops were held by Portia Tung. She is a play scientist. She's a real superstar. And from her, I learned the basics of play, not playing a specific game, just what play means. So how it shapes the brain and opens imagination and playing with prototypes for me is essential for success. Mm -hmm. I, in my work, I, I want to have fun. I want to be creative as much as possible and purest form of playing helps me a lot with that. Mm -hmm. Understand. Can you, can you maybe? Go a bit de more in detail here and un to understand, like when when you talk about because you already mentioned the different aspects, right? There's um, if I understood correctly, it's a, a way of approaching problems and a way that you a certain open you keep a certain open mind in what it means to be solving problems in order to, as you said, like in, inspire creativity. Be open to maybe types of solutions that you have would have not have thought about. Uh, by in some way being too serious with the problem, right? Or can you maybe tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. If you play, it's good to be not too serious. So as an example, as I, did, as I developed my solution for the lost property office, and I already trained my computer to recognize glasses and keys and phones, I just for fun, an image to my computer, which showed one of my dogs, and I asked, which object is this? Mm -hmm. um, my computer told me, yeah, I'm 100% sure this is a key. Okay. What Now the question is, what does it tell us? So my finding was that, okay, maybe I should create another category for unknown objects. Mm -hmm. And that was the key learning out of it. So I... I had fun with experimenting. It was a bit creative and I learned to improve the system. Mm -hmm. Understand. C can you maybe just for our listeners there, like make it a bit like, can you help our listeners to, to, to maybe make use of, of this approach a bit more for themselves? Can you give us a few tips how, how you would recommend someone to, if they are interested in, in making, as you said, like being more, playful being more engaging with the with the solutions they are building how how to maybe do so yeah the first step for me was to um, identify which play type i am which play personalities i can also make a book recommendation here if i'm allowed sure 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 and i will so, include it definitely in, into the show notes um there's a book written by Stuart brown He is the founder of the National Institute for Play. And the book is called Play. Okay. <laughs> That's it. I really enjoyed reading it. And I found out that there he, he defined some play personalities. So mm -hmm. if you enjoy collect, collecting things, then you're most, like, most likely a collector. Or if you enjoy exploring You are the so-called explorer. Mm -hmm. And thinking about your own play personalities helps you to identify which tasks you would prefer in your daily work. 
and put more focus on them. So I, for myself, enjoy planning and exploring a lot. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, I will put more focus on that. And it is okay to explore and to go beyond requirements. Okay. Okay. I understand. Interesting. So in many ways you say that like knowing which type of, of or what play you enjoy most, this then, then helps you like to integrate it in, in, in the approaches that you follow at the time you maybe dedicate to certain aspects during the development of, of this, of your prototypes. Interesting. I'm just curious in this sense, as you already mentioned before, right? There's a certain team size as well, which is relevant when, when you want to do prototyping, you want to move fast. You talk maybe about three or four people before, or for example, in the NetTech challenge, you have been alone. I then wonder as well, similar to this, I would guess there is then some kind of optimal combination of play types so that like one then covers maybe different types of, of players in some way to have them part of the team so that so that they can can look at the the problem from different perspectives, I guess. I don't know if there's an optimal combination. I'm very happy with every play personality. I can tell a bit more about how it works in teams. Mm -hmm. So at work at Cloudflight, I do a lot of, I, I organize a lot of retrospectives and I like to play Dungeons and Dragons as a retrospective, for example. Okay. So we, we have those characters on a board and we fight against monsters or whatever the adventure brings us. <laughs> and this way we can be creative, have fun together and enjoy our working time. And it always brings good suggestions for improvements in the team. Okay. Okay. Can you, um, I have a bit of a challenge to, to imagine how, how this looks like. How is playing such a dungeon game helps you? I mean, I'm not sure to connect. How is this connected? For example, you are at the end of a project or similar. You're reflecting about, or maybe the last sprint, you're reflecting upon the sprint. How is playing this, this type of, of game helping you to reflect on that? It's a lot about visualizing your problems. So if you do a Dungeons and Dragons game and visualize um, your issues in a sprint or whatever, you can find approaches to solve it. And best thing about this, that um, if you play an adventure with your colleagues, you can remember that adventure for a long time. So now I can still remember me and my team fighting those this one dragon that appeared in one of our stories and we tricked him. <laughs> he had a treasure and instead of fighting it, we used spell to make the treasure invisible. And uh -huh. without the treasure around, the dragon wasn't angry anymore and the problem was solved. And then we talked about what did it represent in our project so dragon could be a huge problem that you're heading to mm -hmm. okay you understand correctly now that you said that you are in many ways uh translating from like like as you said like the normal uh 
description of a problem that you would have in many ways. You tr you somehow translating, transposing this to this dungeon and and dragon scenario in order to be then more creative there to be to maybe come up with with ways to think about the problem and possible solutions to approach this problem. Uh, maybe you would not have thought like say in the normal space, and so that. And you can take those suggestions, maybe those solutions in the Dungeon Dragon space, and you bring them back to, to reality. Is, is this what in part you mean? Uh, yes, that's a very important point, because I found that in gamification, you're a lot... In gamification, you try to find an issue first, bring it into a game, play with it, then bring it back to reality, and you have your problem solved. Mm -hmm. But for me, that didn't work so good. I found it's better to play a game and then um, bring the problems into the game, solve it there. Okay. A bit <laughs> switched. So you, you don't have a problem and make it to a game, but you have a game and bring problems into it. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Mm. And and you think this in part helps you because like uh, there is a certain amount of motivation or like certain amount of fun that you already have like for example playing this game and and this then translate and and, and helps you to motivate you to be solving that uh, that problem in the game or why do you think this makes a difference for you? Yeah, the the best the best thing about playing is and i'm totally serious having fun together okay <laughs> so having fun together alone helps you so much that all the other problems are looking very tiny <laughs> okay i understand so okay so from your experience it really helps to keep like the team motivated to keep everyone engaged and to keep people to some extent on their toes and to, to be really then like creative in, in solving the problems very nice. Very, very cool. Well, I th think with this, like, I covered a lot of ground. I think this, as you already said, this, this nicely throws back to what we have been discussing before. But maybe before we close the show, is, is there maybe something that, that is close to your heart that you have not mentioned or something that, which, which, for example, is missing here as a piece to, to complete the picture of like how to, as you already said, how to make sure that you, you can rapidly prototype an AI solution having these iterations, having the aspect of mixed intelligence and, and more than anything else, having fun doing so? Well, of course, there's a message that I can tell. It is be exceptional, be the passion, be the power and be the change. No idea, no inspiration will ever be out of range. Okay, very nice, very cool. But with this part, I think... I want to close the show. I think it has been very interesting. I think there were definitely some, some very interesting and good tips for, for someone, as you said, starting out the new projects in order to, to, to yeah, be successful with them and more than anything, have fun doing so. Yeah, let's go for adventure and play with AI. Great. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. Bye.